0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. Matt Huber will talk about bringing class and the productive sphere into a mainstream climate movement that's obsessed with consumption choices. And Adam Kotzka will talk about the evangelical thinking behind the tendency's opposition to abortion. Before that, a few words in the crypto meltdown. I wrote a very skeptical, critical article on Bitcoin in The Nation in 2014, while I stand by the economic and political analysis, I had no idea that eight years later the racket would not only still be going but it would become a phenomenon. A handful of coins blossomed to thousands and with insane spin-offs like NFTs. None of these instruments have ever really answered the question: "What problem are they meant to solve? Crypto fails as money based on the classic definition of money's purposes, a medium of exchange the universal equivalent in Marx's term, what allows you to buy and sell commodities of all sorts, a unit of account, what businesses and households keep their books in, and a store of value, an instrument for savings. You can buy little with crypto, other than different kinds of crypto, or drugs. Legalize drugs, which we should do, and that use would disappear. Almost no entity keeps its books in crypto, and you'd have to be nuts to park your spare cash in a unit whose prices typically vary by 28% a month, which is the case with Bitcoin over its 12-year history. Though it annoys partisans when you say this, crypto and all that are speculative instruments with absolutely no intrinsic value. Other financial assets have substantial speculative aspects, but they're also claims on something real. Stocks are claims on current and future corporate profits. Bonds are claims on a stream of interest payments. Futures are a claim on some underlying asset like a treasury bond or a bushel of wheat. Serious currencies are claims on things that you can buy with them, like food or an hour of labor. Crypto is a claim on nothing. Its value is merely asserted, often with almost religious fervor. As with any speculative asset, once the Federal Reserve stopped showering the financial markets with trillions in free money and raised interest rates from zero, the crypto market began to collapse. It began slipping late last year, as signs of Fed tightening became hard to ignore, but the slippage was at a leisurely pace. Now the wheels are coming off. So who's going to get hurt by this? We don't know how far the cryptomania has spread into the more mainstream branches of finance, and whether that's to the point of threatening a serious financial crisis. But we do know, from a Pew survey last November, that a lot of Americans have been playing with crypto, young men especially. Perhaps surprisingly, more of the black and Latino population have played with crypto than the white. They could have fallen for the touts line that these bizarre instruments would somehow democratize finance. Reddit is already full of tales of people who have lost everything and are contemplating suicide. One's feelings are very mixed here, sadness over a slaughter of the innocents, a what-were-you-thinking incredulity, and a joy that some promoters are going to take a bath. A final point, crypto is deeply mixed up with far-right politics. It's scary to think about how such a well-armed population, already brimming over with rage, will react to these losses. Enough of me. Matthew Huber, a professor of geography at Syracuse University, is just out with a book, Climate Change as Class War, published by Verso. It is a call to center class and production into a political movement where, at least in the mainstream, consumption and individual action have been central. Too often, moralizing replaces serious political organizing and considerations of power. Matthew Huber. You're basically trying to bring class into the environmental movement, where it's been notoriously absent, both in the analysis of the damage, but also a, a lot of the politics in responding to the environmental uh, and climate crisis in particular. What is missed? There's so much focus on individual behavior, individual action, live a more gentle relationship with the earth. What are the limits of that kind of politics?
1: Well, when I started looking at this, uh, you know, you really could boil down the climate crisis to a struggle over really industrial production, you know, how we produce energy and how that energy is provisioned to various forms of other production of food and housing and whatever else. And when you start thinking about Marxist or socialist class theory as rooted in the relation to the means of production, the fact the working class is trying to struggle to seize the means of production, it really struck me that this is a really helpful way to think about this ultimate struggle over how we produce energy and in and, and our lives. But as you said, the way in which class is analyzed with regard to the climate crisis really makes it only about actually how people use their income in the realm of consumption, what their lifestyle choices are, And you have all these sophisticated tools of carbon footprint accounting to kind of measure the emissions that are embedded in consumption patterns. And that does show a really high levels of inequality between rich consumers, rich countries and poor consumers. But it doesn't really tell us much about class in that traditional Marxist sense in terms of who owns production, who profits from the production that provisions our consumption. And also, like, we really need to focus a lot more on how did these rich people get so rich in the first place? How did they actually generate the money that allows for their Hummer or their private jet or whatever their high emission consumption activities are? And if we looked at some really rich people that might be, you know, let's say a CEO of a chemical company, they probably spend eight to 10 hours a day managing a global network of highly carbon intensive, emission intensive facilities across the world. And that's got way more impact than whatever stake They might eat or or flight they might take out when they get out of the office, right? So there's this weird way in which we only focus on people's consumption as the zone of responsibility, as the zone of choice and politics, where we can actually shape different choices. But really, the bulk of emissions, the bulk of power over our energy system is really these owners who control production, who are hell-bent on maintaining those systems of production to maintain their, their profits for deep into this century. And so using this, this very sort of basic old Marxist way of thinking about class is actually really much more helpful than this kind of income consumption based one that we hear a lot about.
0: Well, people like us have been lamenting the disappearance of class from politics and from social analysis for several decades now. <laughs> but something else has disappeared uh, in a lot of these analyses is production. I mean, you've alluded to this, but everybody talks about consumption, of course. But lately, there's been a trend also towards talking about the asset economy and right, right. Uh, production and the labor relation disappear or take a back seat to this idea of debt and assets. What are we missing by writing production out of uh, our analysis?
1: A lot, <laughs> particularly for, for someone like myself who's trying to kind of understand the ecology or whatever of capitalism or the relation between capitalism and the environment. I mean, it's ultimately a relation of production and how we produce our material existence. This is basic stuff. You know, I totally agree about this kind of asset economy analysis, which has a lot of insight, I think, about how money and wealth work in our highly deindustrialized economy. This monetary wealth that could be wrapped up in whatever the stock market or housing does not really give us a deeper sense of actually where the value is being produced in a global economic capitalist system. It doesn't give us this understanding that uh, Marx's political economy does that ultimately, you know, you have to look at that hidden abode of production to see exploitation in the workplace as the sort of source of surplus value and value that's then sort of churns around the globe and all these financial channels. And so that's what Marx's analysis was really useful for. He really like pointed out that classical political economy kind of was really fixated on exchange relations and the surface of markets. And they weren't really getting deeper into the actual class struggles that shape the actual production of, of life itself. And so I feel like, you know, we live in a context in the United States that's gone through widespread deindustrialization, this sort of shift to a so-called post-industrial kind of knowledge economy where consumption does make up something like 70% of GDP or whatever people say it does. And so people have become so distanced from production, have have gotten so used to not even thinking about it that it's totally evacuated our. Our class analysis at the same time, and that's that's again a real problem if we want to confront the climate crisis or the environmental crisis, which ultimately hinges on our relation to material production.
0: One of the uh, the byproducts of that knowledge economy um, infects uh, climate politics. You talk about this at some length. The emphasis, particularly in kind of a bourgeois uh, professional class environmentalism, the emphasis on the science, the knowledge. Um, It's a matter of just getting people to understand the facts. Any notion of power and politics disappears from that kind of analysis, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's no surprise that as society is deindustrialized, as the industrial working class has been kind of hollowed out and disempowered, you've kind of seen the rise of the professional class and the, the rise of higher education as shaping this kind of wedge in the labor market where professional class people try to carve out some degree of advantage in a highly unequal and barbaric capitalist neoliberal system. And so the 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 people that take advantage of degrees and other professional credentials these are the same people that are most uh, vocal about climate politics and they and it's it's really no surprise like highly educated people with advanced degrees tend to focus a lot on knowledge and the science and and getting the facts right. And that sort of becomes the stuff of politics, you know, like in the Trump years, you had this, people were probably most upset about not his sort of massive material deregulation of the oil and gas industry, but the fact that he was waging a war on facts (laughs) and that we were going to have a march for science and all this kind of stuff. So the climate movement has really focused a ton on belief or denial of the science as if that is really what the struggle is about. And if we could just sort of convince everyone of the truth of climate change, that would automatically lead to widespread political change or political action. But I I point out in the piece that knowledge isn't always actually power. Sometimes uh, climate activists get almost most upset that the fossil fuel industry is like financing climate denial campaigns and, and denying the science Than the fact that they're actually um, much more materially building political power by, you know, contributing to state legislature campaigns and building, you know, you can talk about the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Koch brothers. They're actually like, you know, using money to build real material political power. And yeah, they're also financing a bunch of uh, scientific skeptics who like cast doubt on climate change. And that's that's terrible. It's bad, but it's really not the core of the problem the core is that they have power <laughs> and that they are using that power to prevent widespread action on the climate issue and that's where we really need to
0: focus continue beating up a bit more on the the liberal environmentalists here because um i enjoy it but it's also quite important i think if we want to have a serious uh, climate movement here a lot of the like ngo environmental people focus on very marginalized populations um indigenous people and very poor uh, urban populations and God knows, you know, these people get a raw deal from the system. I'm not trying to excuse that. But they also lack any kind of significant power, actual or potential. I remember I went to a conference at the Rockefeller Estate a few years ago. And we're sitting in this house that Carbon built under Picasso tapestries. And there's exactly that kind of scene with NGO staffers evoking the most marginalized populations. They never seem very interested, almost uncomfortable with or hostile to the middle seventy. 70- or 80% of the population, which is what you really need to get involved in changing anything. I mean, how, what, what about that? Why do you think they have this obsession with people who really have very little in the way of social power?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I fear it's a quite a sort of moral politics that they're invested in and in sort of, again, amplifying and raising uh, the visibility of, of the most oppressed and the most marginalized. And as someone who hangs out in academic and these kind of professional class and NGO circles. I mean, nowadays, basically all the focus is on what people talk about as environmental justice, which means, you know, really focusing on what climate activists call the frontline communities that are bearing the brunt of the worst effects of climate change, bearing the brunt of the worst effects of like the toxic fossil fuel um, infrastructure. And that's super important to highlight and the the struggles over those frontline communities are like important. But as you as you mentioned, like these people are oppressed enough, we can't also expect the most marginalized to be able to, to build uh, the power in a, a mass social movement to take on the fossil fuel capitalists who are actually poisoning them. So what I argue in the book is that this kind of, what I, I call it, livelihood environmentalism, where this idea that environmental politics will emerge from people's direct material threat, environmental threat, like whether it be toxic pollution or some sort of, you know, like land dispossession that you talked about, like indigenous peoples, like this uh, is where a lot of the NGOs and academics think like is what authentic environmental politics is. But I point out like the main threat to people's livelihoods and capitalism is not necessarily pollution, but the market itself, (laughs) the lack of money, uh, the, the fact that people struggle to afford food, healthcare, housing. And so I argue that we really need to broaden climate politics toward this, what I call, a kind of proletarian ecological politics that really takes the fact that the mass of the working class are really dispossessed from the means of production, from the land, from any sort of secure survival and existence. And so that they're really struggling to meet their basic needs in, in, in the market, you know, to get enough money to afford food, housing, energy, especially now with inflation raging. And if we can ground climate politics more in this broad-based proletarian insecurity, we can actually offer a political program that that appeals to a much broader base that could maybe build that kind of power uh, and not put it all on the marginalized, oppressed populations to build that power. And the other really convenient thing about this approach is that if you look at what we need to do about climate change, Essentially, the, the sectors we need to decarbonize are exactly these sectors that working class people have such insecure access to, like food, housing, transportation, and above all, energy. And, um, you know, if we can try to build the type of power that is offering more secure access to these things, whether it be green public housing or uh, public transit, or in my socialist dreams, decommodified access to electricity as a human right, that This would really be very easy to understand as an improvement to people's lives on a much broader scale. People wouldn't even need to understand the ins and outs of climate science and the greenhouse effect to to be on board with that kind of politics. So that seems to be a much more broad-based and mass politics approach to, to climate action.
0: I'm speaking with the theologian and philosopher Adam Kotzko. I'm speaking with Matthew Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, just out from Verso. Now, uh, this brings me to my next um, problem with this kind of liberal Rockefeller environmentalism. I used to talk with uh, Ron Arnold. Ron Arnold was uh, a publicist, basically, who invented the concept of wise use, libertarian, anti-environmentalism. I believe People Magazine once named him the number one enemy of the earth. Uh, But Ron was very successful in his agitation, in his anti-green agitation, by quoting Rockefeller environmentalism as, and he saw it as a kind of austerity program that a lot of the Rockefeller environmentalists viewed the working class as a problem and they needed to tighten their belts. There was a lot of truth to what Ron was saying, wasn't there? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I actually quote Charles Koch, who uh, was quoted in the Washington Post saying that what I'm concerned about is that the poor pay a third of their income to energy and this climate policy stuff's really going to hurt the poor. So, um, Charles Koch is sort of positioning himself as a friend of the poor and, you know, trying to, to help the working class by, by blocking climate action. If anyone mobilizes sort of core class politics in the climate fight, it's the right, right? It's like... From George W. Bush on through Trump, like all at all times, like resistance to climate policy always is framed in economic terms. It's going to cost us jobs, it's going to cost economic competitiveness, and above all, it's going to like raise the cost of living for everyday good working class Americans. It's a very easy argument to make when a lot of liberal climate policy technocratic people are, in fact, arguing for things like carbon pricing and carbon taxes, that they might have wonky solutions to kind of redistribute the revenues to households. But ultimately, it means they want to raise the price of energy uh, for people. And that that is an incredibly easy policy program to villainize as liberal uh, elite out of touch with uh, everyday working people. It's, and so it's, it's, it's sort of amazing. It's somewhat depressing that these climate policy people that want to implement really what our free market policy ideas like carbon taxing and carbon pricing, they're trying to actually win right wing support and, you know, God bless them, Republican support for climate policy, which is (laughs) good luck with that.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: And and they think they can actually like build this bipartisan, not to name names, but I I focus on this organization called Citizens Climate Lobby, who think they're going to build this bipartisan carbon fee policy and they're going to attract Republican support it's hilarious they're sort of falling into the very trap that the right is is bringing them into by focusing on carbon taxes and carbon fees they're saying that they want to make energy cost more and that's just a very easy thing for the right to mobilize this kind of populist reaction um, to and say again environmentalism is about making your making your life cost more and let's let's resist this so yeah it's a it's it's a real sad story in and and it's been going on for decades, right? This kind of idea that, oh, everyone agrees carbon pricing is the obvious thing we need to do. And and the right keeps pointing out how disastrous this would be for working people.
0: Yeah. Now let's uh, look at a better uh, way of doing things, the Green New Deal, which almost seems like a relic of several years ago now, I'm sorry to say. But, you know, it was a good idea and could be again. Uh, But it was focusing on at the same time, addressing the climate crisis, but also improving the security and, and living standards of uh, the mass of the population. And that story got lost, you know, the, the, the rights ob- objections to the Green New Deal, they're going to take away your hamburgers, they're going to take away your Hummer, all that sort of thing. But that's really not what the Green New Deal was about, right? I mean, it was much more positive vision than than that kind of hair shirt environmentalism, the Rockefeller crowd like.
1: Yeah, I, I, I recall, you know, those heady days in 2018 when AOC sat in with the Sunrise Movement in Pelosi's office. And, you know, I really felt like there was a breakthrough. I finally felt like there was a climate politics that was actually trying to like do this very basic working class program. Liberal uh, professional class people got really upset that they put things like Medicare for all in the Green New Deal (laughs) resolution, as if it should be this very narrow technocratic climate policy alone. But they also put things like a job guarantee things like you know, um, way higher levels of paid vacation time. These are universal public goods that would by themselves generate much popular support. But here's the catch, right? The whole theory of change of the Green New Deal is that to build this kind of popular support for climate action, you actually have to start delivering <laughs> these big uh, ambitious public goods, these big jobs programs and forms of public investment and as long as you don't deliver those material gains, we found out that working class people are, are probably rightly going to be skeptical that this is realizable, that it's possible. It's a challenge to actually start building that theory of change by starting to deliver. And so when, you know, ultimately a lot of the climate movement got behind this kind of Bernie Sanders uh gambit at the presidency and that that failed you know (laughs) and I think if Bernie was elected he would have tried to do something along the lines that AOC and others were focused on but he lost and if you look at what Biden has done he has really just doubled down on this narrative that yes climate (laughs) climate change is real we believe science But uh, really, we're going to leave it to the private sector um, to solve. This is something Janet Yellen and John Kerry have just spouted over and over again. that They say government can't solve this. It's going to be private capital to the rescue. And for all the benefits of the now failed and destroyed uh, Build Back Better Act, all the climate policy that was in there that a lot of activists were excited about, and it was going to be a historic level of spending, most of that spending was going to be for tax credits (laughs) to private a uh, renewable capital to do the green energy transition for us, and it wasn't at all this Green New Deal vision of again public investment, public goods, public jobs programs, and so we lost that kind of gambit for a large scale Green New Deal, and we've got to just sort of sit back now and maybe the winds of of political change will shift, and you know I think what Bernie and others were trying to do was really a widespread political realignment of American politics that hasn't, you know, it's taken place maybe once every few decades in the 1930s and the 1970s, the turn to the right and neoliberalism. I mean, it's still feels like we're in this kind of middle period where it's not clear if we're going to go towards some much more darker uh, sort of right wing direction or a left wing realignment. So I think that might still be on the table down the line, maybe a maybe a few years or even a decade. But in the meantime, um, the reason I think that this failed was that there wasn't really a lot of existing working class organization and institutional power already built up to actually have the the power to deliver something like the presidency <laughs> in the heart of empire, right? So what we have, there's no shortcuts, as Jay McAlevey would say, like we actually now that we lost that really high level battle we actually have to get back to basics and start building unions back up which we're starting to see start building things like the kind of institutional presence of labor political parties that exist in a lot of countries not ours of course but something like that some sort of institutional presence in working class people's lives that they can see on a day-to-day level and that can start to deliver real gains so that they can start believing in a kind of a program that that actually Tells them, you know, if you get into this movement, you will see your life improve and and, and actually delivers and then builds confidence amongst the working class that they can actually win um, these gains. Because I think nowadays, working class people really feel kind of hopeless and it's hard to blame them. You know, the the there's been just decades of defeat and capital has been quite triumphant for quite a while.
0: We've only got a couple of minutes left, but uh, you, know, you mentioned uh, that the quote from Kerry, it's all going to be the private sector that's going to do it. You know, Janet Yellen saying similar things. In fact, we need a very active state that's going to step on the toes of capital or none of this is ever going to get done, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I thought finally, like the climate movement had figured this out in uh, 2018, 2019. And there was this real move. You know, everyone was talking about um, the New Deal, as the model or even World War II, you know, like where the state basically commandeered much of the industrial production system and said, you know, you must produce X, you must do Y. And, you know, like the New Deal itself was this incredible sort of era of public investment where they were actually building energy systems to, you know, hydroelectric dams to deliver uh, energy, cheap energy to poor people in the country. You know, the Tennessee Valley Authorities. Slogan was electricity for all. It was this really populist vision um, uh, about proving people's lives through energy, through electricity. And in fact, that's exactly what we would need to do um, to, to solve climate change. We need to build essentially an entirely new energy and electricity system. And if we can kind of think back to that, to how the state and how the public sector not only in the U.S., but in many other contexts, whether it be Scandinavia or France or, you know, the, the, the public sector has been able to really transform energy sectors dramatically in ways that improve working class life. And that's the model that I think we need to look back to if we can ever get people like John Kerry out of power. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. Good luck with that one. Too. <laughs> OK, well, thank you. I was Matthew Huber, professor of geography at Syracuse and author of Climate Change as Class War just out from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the first movement of Beethoven's String Quartet number no. 7, performed by the Emerson Quartet. With reproductive rights very much in the news, I thought a look at why evangelicals, the principal force behind the movement to criminalize abortion, are so obsessed with the issue. To explore that question, we're joined by Adam Kotzko. Kotzko, who teaches in the Shimer Great Book School of North Central College in Illinois, grew up evangelical. He was on the show to talk about that experience back in December 2019. He was also on the show a year earlier to talk about his book, Neoliberalism's Demons, a theological look at free market ideology. Adam Kotzko. I have a simple question, I guess, has probably a long answer. (laughs) Why are the evangelicals so obsessed with abortion? Where did it come from to start with? And why is it such a central obsession?
2: Yeah, I think that one thing that's really interesting, I've been researching this question a bit since you asked me to do this, is that it wasn't always the case. Back in the '70s, um, abortion was considered kind of a fringe Catholic issue, and most evangelicals were kind of had a a reasonable moderate view of this issue. I think that um, it was part of a concerted campaign of political activists who wanted to try to mobilize conservative Christian voters uh, to support Republican politicians, and they were kind of casting about for an issue that would both energize evangelicals and have kind of a veneer of respectability. So initially, they tried to attack attempts to desegregate schools, which fell especially hard on like religious schools that tried to use a religious exemption in order to stay segregated. And that made evangelicals mad, but it also kind of made them look bad, you know, because at that point, open racism wasn't as acceptable. But I think that part of the reason that abortion resonated when it finally did become a big part of the of the religious right movement is that it combines a lot of anxieties about sexuality, about inter- government intervention into the family, and also it gives them a pure, innocent victim that they can claim to be representing.
0: Sometimes it seems uh, the attitude towards the fetus. It's it's um, once you're born. The hell with you! You're on your own. But it, it, the fetus, once born, is like almost like a new car losing value once it's driven <laughs> off the lot.
2: Yeah, that's true. I think that's really a, a great analogy of, and like there's just such a fetishization of the of the fetus, and I think it's the fact that nobody has met the fetus. That the fetus doesn't have any friends or enemies. The fetus hasn't done or said anything yet. That it's this pure, innocent, like just humanity, that you can project your fantasy of what it could have been. A lot of the rhetoric is, imagine if one of these babies that was aborted would have cured cancer or would have been the next Einstein or something like that, when more likely it's just going to be another mediocre person like those around you.
0: Yeah, but um, you know, they don't have the same attitude towards some kid growing up poor who could also be the next Einstein. It's just uh, the unborn kid that attracts all this interest.
2: Yeah, I think that um, it's also attractive because it doesn't make any demands on you the fetus does make the demand of like don't kill me or something like that but once it's born it's somebody else's problem right uh leave it up to the and i think that that's really interesting because if you look at at certain like kind of left slash religious uh types who want to maintain an anti-abortion stance but says like well socialism would solve this they're not interested in giving more support for the family. They're not interested in helping these people make pregnancy more possible. There probably are people who do get abortions who would like to have the child, but can't afford it. And that's a shame. Like people should also be able to have the children they wanna have, but that
0: simply isn't on the agenda. You grew up in the evangelical environment. Was there much talk of abortion, the fetus? Was it an obsession? How prominent was it in in the discourse that uh, surrounded you in your younger days?
2: It was definitely always a point of reference and always a kind of political trump card. My church was aiming at a kind of like socially mobile um, respectability such that like taking a busload of people to protest an abortion clinic just seemed like tacky or something like that Um, so I wasn't really directly on the front lines of that and I'm grateful in retrospect that that didn't occur um, because I was just a kid I would have gone along with it right there were posters on the wall that had American casualties in the civil war and world war ii and vietnam and then and, and like deaths in the holocaust and then like deaths in the war against the unborn and it was like way more this kind of constant invocation that there's like this genocide going on that Democrats and most mainstream institutions want it to happen. And we're somehow like on the vanguard of like saving these lives. Um, It was just a kind of attractive fantasy and also an excuse for, you know, always voting Republican, no matter what, no other issue could possibly uh, dislodge evangelicals, even to this day.
0: The support for Trump, who is about the most immoral man you could imagine on most uh, conventional (laughs) definitions, Um, but because he is going to appoint um, pro-lifers to the Supreme Court, that trumped everything, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And what's really interesting is among evangelicals, they have no historical sense. There's just a a two-year trailing window of history at best. They get to forget everything they knew about Trump from him being a public figure for decades and decades. You've seen these paintings, right, that show Trump as this heroic American Christian hero who's like instructing the youth and all this. It's kind of like Kim Jong-il or something like
0: this. (laughs) They're really bizarre.
2: (laughs) It is. But I think they they have to reconcile it and make him into the kind of Christian hero that they think he is simply because he's appointing these judges. And I think it's really ironic that now that the justices do seem poised to overturn Roe, that Donald Trump, the billionaire playboy, like gleefully boastful uh, sexual assailant, is going to probably go down in history for them as the greatest Christian American ever.
0: Who, no doubt, paid for abortions with his lovers, um, but you know, a thousand (laughs) percent—that's never brought up. Um, You mentioned this that uh, abortion was not significant issue for evangelicals until part of the late seventies, as they were really breaking onto the national scene. I remember watching when I was in. Charlesville, Virginia, late 70s, watching um, Jim Baker and Pat Robertson on TV, we just laughed at them. We didn't think these guys were going to be of any broader political significance. They were just late night entertainment. But you know, who knew? How did they assimilate this new concern into the pre-existing dogma? Was it, how, how does you know, this view of the fetus fit into, uh, and the mother, how does it fit into uh, evangelical doctrine?
2: You don't have to scratch very far to get to the idea that pregnancy is a kind of punishment for having sex and that you shouldn't have had sex and therefore you shouldn't be able to evade the consequences of having sex. I think that they're picturing that the person seeking abortion is always going to be like this kind of unmarried woman, uh, therefore morally uh, questionable to start with, who was irresponsible and... And is trying to get out of it. That kind of like misogyny gets overlaid with the sentimentality about babies because they do think of, you know, they speak of the fetus as though it's already a baby, even an embryo, which is you literally cannot even see it because it's so small. They think of it as like killing your baby or something like that. So they're they're taking what is a potential future human life and already projecting that it is the cute baby that is already your responsibility. That's also your divinely ordained punishment for having been a slut. And it's just like all these weird cross currents of resentment and sentimentality that come together into the, so that I think if you talk to a pro-lifer, they're constantly switching positions like, their position is incoherent if you tried to state it altogether, but it gives them this constant leverage to always have something to respond that sounds good in the moment. And since they think that leaving somebody speechless and frustrated means that they've won the argument, <laughs> that's satisfying to them.
0: Now, draw out the incoherence. What's incoherent about the position? Viewing
2: the the fetus as though it's already an independent entity that has rights over against its mother i think that that you either have to choose that the mother is a human being who has rights over her own body or the fetus is a a being that has rights to demand the services of her body and they never quite want to go there they never like if you press them on that i've talked to pro-lifers who who say why should a person's rights depend on the location that they happen to be in, as yeah. though being gestating within another human being is just you happen to be like in a room over here or something like that, is like making the, the woman to be just an inert container.
0: They wouldn't take that kind of generous attitude towards uh, prisoners.
2: No, certainly <laughs> not.
0: <laughs> What's the, the mix of um, concern over the fetus with uh, the desire to control women? Are, are these things just uh, a nice synergy, and a political synergy for them to be able to accomplish those two goals at once?
2: Well, I mean, there's a whole line of feminist criticism that says that it is precisely women's association with pregnancy and therefore with raising the child that has historically put them at a disadvantage and put them in a position where they're vulnerable to subordination and things like that. I think it was stated rather nakedly in this infamous New York Times column, and he said, yes, the abortion ban is going to have destructive consequences, but it's, a, it's totally worth it because we're saving lives. And one of the things he mentioned was like a greater number of shotgun weddings
0: were likely to occur. That would be a good thing.
2: He phrased it as though that was one of the potentially bad consequences. But I think if you read it as a whole, it's very ambiguous whether that would actually be bad because he probably does want to return to traditional um, morality where marriage is the only forum where sex happens. And, you know, a shotgun wedding is kind of retrospectively trying to say, well, we already were married or it causes us to be married or something like that to try to close the gap between sexuality
0: and marriage. And a lot of um, uh, reproductive rights people will uh, try to plead with the pro-lifers by saying, don't you understand that women are going to suffer and die from illegal abortions? Is that a very um, fruitful approach, or do they not care, or might even think that suffering is is deserved?
2: If forced, they would say, well, that's a shame. But also, you know, they're doing something against the law. I think that there's a lot of magical thinking about how the law works, as though simply the fact that it's written down means that people have to do it. Like, if you try to say, well, you know, what would really reduce abortions is increased contraceptive access and greater, like, support for young families and all of this. They're never going to buy that because they think that if there's a law, then it won't happen. And if it does happen, then the state is going to be punishing uh, the right people in the right way uh, for it happening. So they would just say, you shouldn't have been doing that. You know, you should have thought of that kind of thing. It's personal responsibility suddenly um, arises in this discussion.
0: Now they also now, now it looks like victory on Roe is at hand. Um, now they're talking about uh, banning contraception. Has that always been an evangelical obsession or is it uh, gaining new prominence now?
2: No, I think that actually, um, you know, in 1968 is when uh, the Pope unexpectedly declared that uh, birth control was not permissible for Catholics and abortion was kind of part of that discourse. Like since birth control is not permitted of course abortion as the most the, the last resort of birth control is not permitted to and that position seemed crazy to even a lot of Catholics and didn't have a lot of purchase and I remember growing up like a lot of people would say you always had the, the option of birth control so why would you why should you get to um, have an abortion simply because you chose not to have birth control or something like this as though birth control never fails, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of magical thinking, a lot of kind of that everything works hundred percent of the time or whatever. Um, But I have frankly been pretty surprised by this. And I think it might be due in part to the growing alliance between Catholics and evangelicals that this kind of anti birth control agenda is gaining a little bit more purchase because I think that where the Catholics have tried to make the birth control position more plausible to their evangelical allies, it's through likening the prevention of like implantation of the fertilized egg as a, as a form of abortion. It's kind of likening all birth control to kind of a proto-abortion rather than the initial position was that abortion's not permitted because it's a kind of birth control.
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about the Catholics, because you know, the majority of the Supreme Court now is conservative Catholics. Uh, the opinion is written by a conservative Catholic. He's got conservative Catholic allies in the court. Um, how do the evangelicals feel about that? It used to be that you know the papists were evil. Um, is this just a, an alliance of convenience?
2: It's really evolved over time. And I think that as Catholics have become more right-wing, at least their leadership has become more right-wing, um, I think that it's become less a marriage of convenience and more a genuine appreciation. I think that it's also interesting that Mormons have been brought into the fold when they are even further beyond the pale. Uh, like I think uh, growing up, and even probably today, if if you asked an evangelical, they'd say that Mormonism was a kind of cult, not a real form of Christianity. And yet Mitt Romney was a good you know, vehicle of convenience uh, for this too, and and Mormons were very decisive in some referenda about, you know, sexual issues as well.
0: I remember when I interviewed you a while back that you said there were some evangelicals envied uh, the sophistication of Catholic theology. like, <laughs> Is that part of the, the, yeah, I, the story? Yeah, I think that there
2: is a bit of that. One thing that any evangelical who becomes at all intellectually engaged and, you know, engaging in this kind of anti-abortion arguments and rhetoric, you do have to think it through at least a little bit, right? And I think that you come to realize how little history and how little tradition and just how little there there is, especially, you know, given that it's as though there were there were three moments in history before now, which is the creation, Jesus's lifetime, and the founding of the United States, and everything else just doesn't matter. Not even like Martin Luther or something like that. All of that just doesn't really matter. Um, and there's this like immediacy of like you have access to the simple gospel message, but the simple gospel message that they're preaching is pretty thin gruel.
0: Well, the founding of the United States uh, is that because the United States is part of the divine mission? Yeah, it's a it's a Christian nation,
2: definitely. I mean, that was a huge part of the rhetoric too. Is that America is intrinsically a Christian nation. And this creeping secularism is like betraying the reality of what America is. And so in a way, like evangelicals in seeking that law should echo evangelical teachings or that Christianity should have a special pride of place in public life, they're not arguing for special favors. They're just arguing for how it always was and how it always should have been. And actually the people who oppose it are doing something new and different and innovating and betraying the founders.
0: Now, there's some people on the left who react to this um, evangelical obsession with abortion, but also trans issues, gay marriage. Uh, These are cultural issues somehow separate from politics or inferior to politics in some sense. But these issues around sexuality, gender roles, these are really, really, really central to the evangelical worldview, right? It's very crucial this is not some kind of distraction
2: no and i think that the etymology of economy for instance is that it is the management of the household and i think that uh, republicans have been great at kind of tying the kind of market order they want to the type of moral order that evangelicals want in the household of their own household to like show personal responsibility to you know have control over your sexuality these kind of things that it should be echoed all throughout um society. I think people I, I did mention that I think the pro-life position is incoherent intrinsically, but I think it is part of a broader worldview that does all hang together and leftists who are just trying to find contradictions and show up hypocrisy, or think that, well, we can distract them with these pure pocketbook issues, and, like, that's delusional. Like, it all goes together for them, and I think they're right that it all goes together. What the problem with it isn't that it's hypocritical or that it's contradictory. The problem is that it's
0: destructive. So what's the overarching philosophy that that, that holds it all together? I
2: think it's a philosophy centered on appropriate hierarchies, that there are some forms of life that are simply better there's some lifestyles that are more divinely ordained everything else is a kind of deviation from that that really for instance by telling people that they shouldn't engage in homosexuality it's not just that we're grossed out and we we don't want to see that or something like that they tell themselves that actually heterosexuality is the superior way it's the way that god wanted them to be and the fact that they have these feelings is a burden but they should find a way to participate in the fullness of God's plan for their life or whatever.
0: And of course, uh, part of those hierarchies are that man is over woman. Yes, absolutely. And, and getting back to the original
2: um, point about segregation, I mean, there is a racial hierarchy too. I think a lot of, but I think a lot of evangelicals, they aren't like hardcore biological racists or something like that. They're more the the cultural racists who just like, well,
0: you know, black people just haven't gotten their act together somehow. The Catholics, the reactionary Catholics, are also centering um, trans issues um, as well. This um, this has given new life to that uh, reactionary religious worldview.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's shocking. I mean, there was a a letter that the governor of Utah wrote to accompany his veto of a of a trans athlete ban in schools, and he said he had tracked down that it was that there were three individuals involved like this all of this activism was for like three kids who weren't even like that good or something like that and so i mean it's kind of shocking clearly their reaction and the measures they're taking are far out of proportion to any impact that trans people could have it's clearly a lot of you know it's like gender trouble that they're <laughs> experiencing like there's clearly something deeply disturbing about um, the existence of trans people to them.
0: But it would also, uh, you know, violate God's rules and um, uh, overturn hierarchies and divisions that uh, are you know, divinely inspired, right? I mean, it's, it's a challenge to uh, God's law.
2: Yes, exactly. That I mean, their existence, like the gender binary is one of their most important hierarchical kind of, foundations. And so I think that, yeah, the existence of trans people who don't fall into either category neatly or who are able to move between the two of them, um, even if they only want to move one direction and then remain there, that still, it can't exist. And so they want to make it not exist.
0: So knowing all this, um, is there a better way to fight it than we have? Trying to win them over or trying to
2: argue with them or show, or like find common ground, you know, God says that we should take care of creation. So you should be an environmentalist. Like they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, hear the Bible quoted to them from outsiders. I think that they're basically unreachable. And I think that the only strategy is to mobilize the majority of people who oppose their views and shut them out of power. And I think that part of the problem is that Democrats simply don't want to do that? I think that Democrats think that they would lose more by mobilizing that population than they would gain by by shutting the the radical right wing out of out of national politics. But they're very well organized. Yes, the right wing. Yeah, it's probably the most well organized political force in the U.S. Uh, currently. Unfortunately,
0: but I mean, the, the churches themselves are like real political units and political organizations.
2: Yeah. Um, and that might speak to, you know, stripping them of their tax-exempt status or something like that. But again, Democrats don't want to do that because they still have this fantasy of winning over the suburban soccer mom, who now has become the megachurch mom or something. It's, yeah, it's very frustrating.
0: That was Adam Kotzko, a theologian who teaches in the Scheimer Great Books program at North Central College in Illinois. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. When Adam Costco was in the show in 2019, he talked some about how Amy Grant's 1982 indecently catchy song, I Have Decided, a cover of a song by Christian songwriter and singer Michael Card, summarized some core points of the movement's theology. You need not be good to be saved. In fact, that could result in unseemly pride. Adam said that evangelicals like to joke about how hell is full of good people. Or as Card says via Grant here, So forget the game of being good in your self-righteous pain, because the only good inside your heart is the good that Jesus brings. Being saved comes from being born again. You don't have to give a damn about your neighbor. Don't abort your fetus, but once the kid is born, it's all on them. Till next week. Bye.